I'm Corrine Linz, and you're listening to Infrontelligence, a podcast from Renew Canada magazine. Two of Canada's three largest infrastructure projects right now are nuclear refurbishments. There's talk of small modular reactors across the country and the potential for nuclear energy to be a key contributor in the fight against climate change cannot be ignored. In the following discussion, we uncover what's driving Canada's nuclear future, how nuclear fits into the broader fuel mix, and what technology and skilled labour will be needed to triple our energy resources by 2050. So good morning and welcome to Renew Canada's Infrarintelligence series. My name is Corrine Linz and I'm the content director here at Actual Media. I'll be your moderator for today's discussion. And today, with our illustrious panel of experts, we're going to look ahead to see what Canada's nuclear future holds. And we have a lot to talk about over the next year, uh, next hour. Uh, two of Canada's three largest infrastructure projects right now are actually nuclear refurbishments. There's talk of small modular reactors across the country and the potential for nuclear energy to be a key contributor in the fight against climate change cannot be ignored. So I'm eager to get the conversation started. But before I introduce our speakers, I'd like to take a minute to acknowledge the many First Nations and Indigenous peoples of Canada as the original stewards of this great country. I'm in Toronto, which is located in, on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We all share in the responsibility of our natural infrastructure, and there's much we can learn from the traditional knowledge of the land water, and materials that allow us to build projects that benefit all Canadians. All right, so let's get started and meet today's experts. I'm going to begin by inviting each of our panelists to the screen. Once they're all on screen, I'll have each of them spend a couple minutes to introduce themselves and quickly tell us a bit about where they're from, what their role is, and what perspective they're bringing to today's discussion. All right, first up, we have Louis Shukas from PCL Construction. And then we have John Gorman from the Canadian Nuclear Association. We also have Heather Klebb from Bruce Power and Michael Powell from Canadian Electricity Association. All right. So what we're going to do first is we're going to go around and I'm going to invite each of our speakers to introduce themselves. So, Louis, would you kick us off, please? Sure. Absolutely. Louis Shukas, PCL Construction. Uh, I've been with the company for about five years. I have about 30 years in the nuclear industry. I started my career with Ontario Hydro back in the day when we were finalizing the construction of the Darlington plant. And I'm pretty happy that uh, it's taken us close to 30 years, but we're getting we're getting going and we're going to we're going to look at building some new power plants. Uh, PCL is uh, Canada's largest general contractor, and uh, we have uh We do work in different sectors, uh, buildings, infrastructure, and of course, uh, heavy industrial. And and I'm part of the heavy industrial group and uh, lead the nuclear organization there. Thanks for having me. Heather, would you please uh, go next? Sure. Good morning. Uh, I'm pleased to have the opportunity to uh, participate in this panel. As uh, mentioned, uh, I'm the Director of Next Generation Nuclear Technology at Bruce Power. Uh, I'm an ecologist by training and I've spent several years assessing the environmental effects of the forestry, mining, oil and gas, and of course, nuclear industries. Uh, In recent years, I've transitioned from the assessment of environmental effects to the licensing of nuclear facilities, uh, including radioactive waste management facilities and nuclear power generating facilities. Uh, 
Uh, however, in my current role, I'm focusing on Bruce Power's energy innovation interests. Uh, Bruce Power fulfills its energy innovation interests through the Bruce Power Center for Next Generation Nuclear. Uh, we established the center late last year jointly with Chemical Corporation. And through our activities, uh, we pursue a series of partnerships to uh, uh, develop, support the advancement of energy innovations uh, in a variety of sectors. So today we'll be speaking about SMRs. People are probably aware that we entered into an agreement with Westinghouse late last year uh, to support them as they pursue the development and deployment of the Evinci reactor in Canada. Uh, in addition, we have partnerships in hydrogen and fusion energy uh, innovations and, of course, support the advancement of innovations coming out of the CANDU technologies. So uh, with that, I'll say thank you. I'm very pleased to be here and I'll turn it back to you, Kareen. Great. Thank you, Heather. Uh, and now, John, let's give it a try. Perfect. Thank you. Um, really appreciate the opportunity to be here with my uh, fellow panelists this afternoon. Uh, I'm John Gorman, President and CEO of the Canadian Nuclear Association. I think, um, well, for those of you who don't know, I've, I've got a long history in the energy and electricity sector, more than 20 years. Uh, but the, the, the lion's share of that spent in the renewables uh, sector. And uh, so two years ago, uh, making the shift over to, to nuclear. And um, listen, I, I got to say, I think uh, as a nation, Canada is doing just about everything right. Uh, on the nuclear front. Um, we're refurbishing our, our existing uh, nuclear plants here in Ontario, the majority of them. It's, um, uh, you know, because nuclear provides 15% of Canada's uh, electricity uh, and because we know that uh, one of the most cost-effective ways to keep clean energy sources uh, like nuclear online is to go through a refurbishment like that. Uh, it's it's important that um, we're able to to do it, and it's a ten year project that um, is going to be providing uh, very cost competitive electricity uh, to to Ontario for well into the twenty sixties. You know, my kids will be considering retiring <laughs> uh, at that time, and uh, we're providing it for about two thirds of the the retail cost of electricity here in, in Ontario. Uh, this uh, refurbishment is not only the biggest infrastructure project in Canada. It's you know employing seventy six thousand people. It's contributing seventeen point three billion dollars to the GDP each year, and I think importantly, it's enabling Canada to build on its uh, proud history of uh, nuclear operation over sixty years of history of safe, uh, reliable, clean electricity generation in Canada. Um, and it's also enabling us to do some incredible innovation, uh, both in nuclear medicine, but also in small modular reactors. Canada is becoming a first mover in small modular reactors. A lot of exciting stuff happening there. And I know that we're going to be able to, to talk about that. Um, lastly, I'll just say inc incredible collaboration between our world-class regulator, which is a competitive advantage for Canada, and also between the federal government and, and four of the provinces in Canada, where the premiers have signed an MOU to develop and deploy small modular reactors in partnership with uh, four major utilities. So we're doing things uh, really well here in Canada. We've got an opportunity to decarbonize and help the rest of the world do that. And I'm looking forward to speaking about it. Great. Thank you so much. And Michael? Uh, hi, my name is Mike Powell. I am Vice President of Government Relations at the Canadian Electricity Association. Uh, CEA is the, uh, uh, the, the organization in Canada that represents the full value chain of electricity. So 
our members uh, make electrons, move them to the customer, and then and then deliver it to them. One thing that uh, differentiates us a little bit between uh, John's group is that we we do the whole all, all different kinds of uh, electricity generation, whether it be nuclear or hydro or, or wind and solar. And so where we're, where we are really interested is in as Canada looks forward to uh, building a, a decarbonized future, how we can uh, meet that need with with clean power. And the, in the government of Canada's Healthy Environment, Healthy Economy Plan, which was announced last year. Uh, the you know commitment that was put forward was uh, we'll probably need two to three times the amount of clean power that we have. It's going to have to be clean, obviously. It'll have to be affordable, and it'll also have to be reliable. And there's no universe uh, we think uh, that is we're going to be able to hit that without having uh, a healthy role for nuclear, whether it's existing or future. Uh, you know, variable sources like wind and solar are uh, you know a huge benefit, but we're going to need more of everything, and we're particularly going to need more of those things that um, that are there when you need them. And so baseload power like that, particularly in places which don't benefit from existing hydro resources, uh, nuclear is a pretty good option. So that's uh, where we're looking. Fantastic. Thank you. We've kind of already started to get into the things I fear for our first question, but uh, I'm going to ask it. So between the massive refurbishment projects underway and the innovative new tech under review, there's a lot of buzz in the industry about nuclear energy. Are we on the precipice of significant growth? It certainly uh, looks that way in the mainstream media. Who would like to jump in first on this one? Well, I can. Go for it, Louis. Sure, why not? Uh, I'll start it off. So, yeah, based on my observation uh, over the decades, kind of watching the industry grow, the electric industry, um, you know, we've, we've, we've turned a corner in terms of looking at how we manufacture and we build uh, nuclear reactors. And... And the world, I'd say, almost simultaneously seemed to turn towards small modular reactors as a means of changing the way we actually implement the technology. And, and, and so, and maybe one of my peers can get into it more. There's actually two tiers, I'll call it, of uh, small modular reactors. We actually have a grid size, which some would argue that's not very small. Um, and then, and then we've got an intermediate size, and then we also have some very small modular reactors that are actually being designed to serve some small communities or mining, remote mining operations. So, depending on which one you talk to, the the philosophy has kind of changed. And 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 what was fascinating is watching this unfold. It didn't unfold just in Canada or just in the United States. It kind of happened simultaneously over the last five years around the globe. And we have developers from around the world that have options in small modular reactors, which is what's fascinating. And, and in my career, it's kind of like the two perfect storms that have just collided, which is, you know, I, the world is changing their perception of nuclear in terms of the cleanliness of it. Because those of us who have been in the industry have known for very often that, you know, you want to challenge clean well, we'll talk to you about it and we can talk about it on many fronts and we're going to touch on some of the issues because nothing is perfect and we know that. But but you add that in and I've never seen alignment from the federal government right down through into the industry operators before in my entire career. So that to me is particularly exciting. So I do think we're on just the verge of an expansion globally, not just in Canada. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah, I would just... Um 
add on to uh, what Louis said. Um, you know, I, when you mentioned significant change, it uh, it causes me to pause somewhat because in many respects, we haven't changed at all. Um, we've provided uh, emissions-free electricity for decades and uh, refurbishment is going to extend the life of our units at Bruce Power out to 2064 and, you know, which will allow us to uh, produce emissions-free electricity for many decades more. Um, but I think what has has changed is, uh, I think, people's awareness and acknowledgement of the role that nuclear plays in uh, climate change mitigation. And I think that's also partly due to um, recent efforts to advance SMR deployment in Canada. So, you know, the the 2017 Government of Canada uh, efforts to engage people across Canada in the development of an SMR roadmap that identified concrete steps towards the deployment of SMRs in Canada. And then that was followed on by an SMR action plan that led to hundreds Hundreds of actions that could then uh, be taken to support the deployment of SMRs in Canada. But um, together, you know, all of that contributed to an increased or heightened awareness of the contribution that nuclear is making to climate change mitigation. Great. And, and John, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I would. I mean, look, uh, I think the question is, uh, are we poised for growth uh, globally? And um, uh, I'd say it's inevitable. It's inevitable. So, uh, ask any any electricity uh, technology provider, gas, uh, wind, solar, hydro. Uh, there's a recognition here, um, a growing recognition that we're going to not only have to clean up our existing electricity grids, uh, but we're going to have to create um, two to three times the amount of clean electricity that we currently have if we're going to decarbonize economies around the world. That's like a mind-blowing uh, amount of uh, generation that has to be introduced, right? <laughs> so, uh, and and nuclear is uh, is a is a power horse on, on that front, right? We're we're a million times more energy dense than uh, you know coal, uh, for example, right? Um, the uh, the single largest uh, carbon reduction in- initiative in the world that I'm aware of is uh, what we accomplished here in Ontario uh, when we phased out coal and uh, replaced that with. Uh, 89% of that coal with uh, with uh, with incremental uh, nuclear energy. Um, it's it's the only source of clean electricity that we have that's going to be able to complement uh, renewables, uh, those intermittent sources of renewables, uh, in a way that uh, allows them to have uh, more room on the grid, greater penetration, uh, while while not creating emissions. So, so it's inevitable. Um, you know, this trend that Louis mentioned uh, is is just a, a focusing of the minds right now, as as people recognize that we're not making. Uh, progress progress nearly quickly enough. So we got to keep our existing large uh, units online. We got to introduce uh, small modular reactors. We got to build a lot of conventional new nuclear. Uh, we need that large scale stuff, and uh, we just need the the world to you know put its attention on on what electrification means and and the great challenge that uh, that is there in front of us. I'll just say one last thing to emphasize this. Uh, Heather touched on it, but you know. Uh, 20 years ago, when I started in the renewable sector, we had 36% non-emitting electricity on the world's electricity grids. In the last 20 years, uh, we've accomplished a huge decline in the price of renewables, huge penetration, huge investment. We're still at 36% non-emitting electricity on the world's grids. Uh, Renewables has enabled us to keep a sort of steady state, uh, but we're going to have to replace those fossil fuels, which are currently supporting wind and solar. 
uh, with with nuclear and with hydro where 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 possible. And then we're going to have to double or triple the amount of electricity generation we have. We got an urgent task in front of us. For sure. I see you nodding in, in agreement there, Michael. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm just going to pile on more numbers. Um, I, I think sometimes we we take for granted in Canada how clean a grid we have and the hard work that it's taken to get here. So we've reduced our GHG emissions as a sector by almost half since 2005. And Canada right now are, you know, it varies year to year depending on a bunch of things, but, it, you know, around 82 or 83% non-emitting. Uh, so, so we're pretty good. But to, to get to double or triple the amount of electricity, clean electricity by 2050, um, we've, we've done all the easy stuff. We've turned off or will have turned off all the coal by 2030. And, to make sure that power is there and we can count on it, we need that base load. And in, in a lot of places, the, the best option for that will be some kind of nuclear. And so there, there's no getting around that. Uh, and I think the, the role, as John said, that it can complement other technologies like uh, variables like wind and solar, uh, but, but also looking at how we produce other clean fuels, um, be it hydrogen or, or something else, uh, is, is going to be a big deal. The um, Canadian Institute on Climate Choices, which is a government-funded think tank, did a, a look at pathways to net zero. All involve some sort of electricity in, in one way or the other, some more than others. But they they sort of looked at opportunities and called the wild cards for where things might go. You know, uh, SMRs are one of those, but they have to pay off. And the question is just not so much will they, but to the degree and when they will, because otherwise we're just not going to be able to hit our targets without that affordable baseload power that is, is always there and always able to do things. Excellent. Did anyone else want to comment on that broader fuel mix need in terms of how nuclear will support these other renewable energies as well? Yeah, I, I, I think it's all about balance. Um, you know, you have to look at some of the practical applications of some of the other renewables. You know, in Canada, for example, we're pretty far north. So, you know, I don't know how much luck you're going to have with a solar panel <laughs> up in the Northwest Territories where it's dark half the year. Um, however, you know, we can use them to complement each other. And I always say it's about um, looking at it, each situation, depending depending on where you are geographically in the world, and then you'll you'll figure out what your mix of renewables will be for that particular area in the world. And and some of these renewables, as we've spoken to, we use the word intermittent. Um, you know, so until we get some sort of storage to help supplement that, then you do need a very strong base load generation. So then you look at your options for base load generation, and we've pretty well exhausted all the hydraulic opportunities, which is probably your cheapest port source of power, and it's um, and, and extremely clean. Um, and, and then you get into the nuclear piece as well. So, you know, I always say that it's um, it, it's situational, the discussion around, you know, what renewables are we going to use in terms of serving the needs of a geographic region? And it's funny because when people speak, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, but we should, you know, go wholehearted with wind or go wholehearted with solar. Well, we've done the calculations. There's actually not enough landmass to put windmills everywhere <laughs> and solar panels everywhere to serve our energy needs. So even that doesn't work, right? Like everything has its limitations. So we need a mix. Fair enough. You mentioned the geographic reach. Is there an opportunity for other Canadian provinces to, de to develop nuclear assets too? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. I, I'm based out of Alberta, so I applaud yeah. Alberta. For <laughs> um, you know, I live in Ontario, and, and I saw the migration and the bold step that we took about turning off our coal plants, and, uh, and I really admire that. You know, that really 
um, took a lot of courage. We took plants that were actually perfectly operating and we decided, you know, we're going to make this step and we're going to make this leap and we're going to turn them off and, and, and off we went. And here we are, you know, two decades later and, and we're doing just fine. And, and I encourage the other provinces to look at that behavior and, and see how we got there. And of course, nuclear was one of the, the prime bases that allowed us to get there. And now we, since then, we've got more renewables that are accessible and, and, and we can place them in the marketplace as well. Um, it gets a little bit complicated depending on which market you're serving. It was easy in Ontario because we own the entire electrical system uh, through the province of Ontario. We can make that decision. I'll give you the example. Alberta is different. It's a cottage industry. It's not uh, um, it's not owned by one entity and there are contracts out there. So that's a little bit more, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a landscape that you have to weave your way through over time and, and get there. But it doesn't mean that it can't be done. Right. And John, I think you were looking to jump in there, too. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to give a sort of a case study uh, for you. I use a Saskatchewan as, as an example. You know, Saskatchewan has a, a real challenge in front of it. It's uh, heavily reliant on coal-fired electricity, and the federal government has mandated it has to get off of coal-fired electricity by 2030. Uh, this government has introduced very aggressive carbon pricing uh, regime, um, and uh, so so they they see replacing coal with uh, gas-fired electricity generation as a as a potential uh, risk and liability. Right in terms of uh, cost, it will become cost prohibitive. So, uh, at the same time, you know, there's uh, there's a they, they often uh, joke in Saskatchewan that uh, there's more poles, more hydro poles than people. Right, they've got a, a very spread out uh, electricity grid, which uh, has a lot of thin wires and capacity on it, which means they're having trouble integrating more wind and solar uh, onto their electricity grid. So uh, long story short, uh, the ideal uh, for Saskatchewan and, and Saskatchewan's plan uh, is to bring in some water power from Manitoba, build uh, four small modular reactors. Um, so that's a new you know, clean baseload of electricity. And SMRs are very responsive, good partners for renewables. The combination of water power and SMRs um, allows them to build out more wind and solar. And uh, in the process, uh, they get to avoid uh, 76 megatons of, uh, of emissions that would otherwise come from building out gas, you know, which would be operating until December 31st, 2049, as we work towards our net zero 2050, right? So it's a, a perfect example of, um, of how these provinces uh, need to work together. The jurisdictions need to work together. We need multiple clean technologies to make these, uh, this decarbonization happen. Great. Go ahead, Heather. Yeah, I'd just like to uh, reinforce what was already said. Uh, to me, there's more than an opportunity for provinces, other provinces to develop nuclear assets. Um, I think there, there's actually a demand. Uh, and that as, you know, as uh, John alluded to, the federal government has given very clear signals starting back in 2018 mm-hmm. uh, when they rolled out the regulations to phase out coal by 2030. And uh, integral to that was the goal of uh, 90% uh, non-emitting uh, electricity sources by 2030, which is, you know, an ambitious goal. But um, as was mentioned earlier, we recently just celebrated our seven-year anniversary of phasing out coal in Ontario uh, and nuclear um, was instrumental in that, uh, providing a seven, 70% emissions-free electricity supply. Um, 
you know, John also mentioned uh, the capacity requirements in Saskatchewan and Alberta. And just to give you a sense of, of, of what's required at, at Bruce Power, um, you know, we have over 6,400 megawatts of capacity and that allows us to, uh, to avoid 19 million tons of greenhouse gases a year. And, and the government is looking to reduce um, our greenhouse gases by 12.8. So that's an eight reactor fleet that provides ex- that 6,400 megawatts and offsets you know, um, millions of tons of greenhouse gases a year. So um, we need to make some dramatic uh, changes. That's great. Thank you. You know, the only thing, just not, not to the pile on, I, I don't think we fully appreciate the degree to which doubling or tripling the amount of electricity we produce in Canada in the next 30 years is a, is a monumental challenge. Um, and, and, you know, Louis and, um, uh, you know, Heather and John can attest this. Nothing gets built quickly. And there's reasons for that. Things are complicated. They take time. Um, we have, there's approvals to make sure that all, all these things have to happen. And to go from, you know, 640 or whatever terawatt hours to 1800 in the next uh, 29 years is, is not just a moonshot. It, it's like a pseudo shot. And, uh, we can get there, but we have to get at it and we have to bank on, using every available resource. And that's going to mean that the way we did things previously in some places will, will have to be different. And that's going to evolve between now and 2050. And inevitably, that's going to involve technologies like SMRs that are going to be in places where they haven't been before. And, and even just to... Even just to, to comment on... Oh, go ahead, John. Oh, um, thank you. Uh, thanks, Louis. I just wanted to react to something that Michael uh, pointed out. Uh, by saying, I think we, we got a we got a fundamental uh, problem here in uh, Canada uh, with the fact that we're not coming to terms with the amount of electricity generation we we need to to plan. And uh, if you look across uh, the country, uh, if you look at every single long term energy plan produced by the um, you know by the systems operators in each of those provinces, all of them are forecasting flat demand, uh, essentially. I mean, Mike yeah. can, can chime in here, but uh, essentially they're all predicting flat demand. Well, how do you plan for a clean future uh, with double or triple the amount of electricity generation if you are having your systems operators say that there's not going to be increased demand? So obviously there's a disconnect here between what we need to do uh, going forward and, and uh, what is currently in place. And, and frankly, that's very troubling. Does anybody else want to respond to that? I was just going to say that, you know, your question about participation from the provinces not only is about the use of nuclear electricity, but really it's the supply of resources into the sector. Uh, we have skill sets right across Canada that could contribute. And, um, you know, by example, PCL was not involved in nuclear um, five years ago, but we are now. And, um, you know, our, our ability to do large modular construction dovetails beautifully with the SMR industry, which is what our interest is, is the greenfield construction of these small modular reactors because it's right in our wheelhouse. And, um, and, 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 you know, as you go across the province, you know, you've got Saskatchewan and, and, and we have uranium reserves that, you know, once the, all this gets triggered and the whole industry starts to increase globally, then even our natural resources that we have in Canada supplying that industry, you know, get engaged and they, get, they all get turned on again. So that's a, a huge plus for Canada as a whole. And then you go to the coast to New Brunswick and we've got reactors over there. And, you know, they've got a great program going on over there looking at um, ARC and Moltex technology. And, and one of those technologies is, you know, 
potentially going to reuse some of the old waste, the waste that we have from our existing nuclear reactors, which, you know, to me is, you know, a great place to go. Um, you know, some people look at that as a liability. I look at it as an opportunity. And and there's a whole stream of thought out there, and we're developing technologies to go after that and, and, and actually improve the efficiency of the whole fuel cycle around nuclear reactors. And then they, you can actually move fuel from one technology to the next within your own country as it goes through um, the life cycle. So, you know, there's there's a role for everybody to play in this in this sector. I'm just going to pop in this uh, question we've got from the audience because I think it fits now. And I'm afraid if we don't hit it, the flow <laughs> of discussion will be lost. So, uh, so it says here, uh, analogous to the discussion around wind and solar, would the panel be able to comment on the how biofuels, which seem to get a lot of press beyond their actual capability to address large energy needs? I can, I, I can start it off at least and yeah, tell you what I know about biofuels. I, um, I have the benefit that I'm involved with the district energy sector as well. <clears throat> and, and the use of biofuels has been become prominent in, in that industry. And, and in the discussion around biofuels, what you will typically find is that where they get developed, that you need a pipeline to get them to where you're going to use them. So that is one of the limiting factors about biofuels is that we haven't found a way to mass produce these and ship them to locations. And, and that becomes one of the limiting factors. But, you know, looking even at district energy systems as part of your energy solution, you know, they are they are they are making use of that because that is a cottage industry. You have district energy systems across Canada, U.S. You go to Europe, they're absolutely everywhere. So it, you can actually run a pipeline from a, a biofuel uh, facility and, and make use of that and, and get some great results in terms of reducing your greenhouse gas emissions. Go ahead, John. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, because Louis addressed that uh, question very well, like I, I want to go on a bit of a tangent here. <laughs> and, and that is just to, uh, to, to, draw, to draw attention to uh, nuclear's, uh, nuclear's capacity to do more than produce electricity. Mm-hmm. And uh, by, this, uh, by this, I mean um, uh, the high temperature heat. Uh, it's not just the electricity that can be used to do things like produce hydrogen, which could then be used to you know, produce ammonia or synthetic fuels, uh, but uh, the high temperature heat that can be used to uh, help decarbonize heavy industry for example, um, in the oil sands, uh, let's take that example, in the oil sands, creating very high temperature steam with a small modular reactor that could uh, decarbonize, can completely clean up the way that we extract uh, oil and gas, right? which is a, a huge emitter for us, or by introducing small modular reactors into Canada's heavy industry. You know, our carbon pricing covers about 80% of uh, the sort of energy sector and 40% of that, half of that, I should say, is uh, heavy industry. And it's a very difficult place to decarbonize. But uh, recent work that we've done, uh, and, and uh, Heather and Bruce Power have been you know, a central part of this, um, have demonstrated that uh, adoption of small modular reactors in heavy industry uh, is not only uh, the most attractive option in many, many cases for heavy industry, but that it's going to uh, reduce... Uh, emissions from that sector by a, an enormous amount, by about 18% uh, by 2050. So uh, it's the high temperature heat of nuclear that that distinguishes us from other sources of just clean electricity generation. I thought that was important to point out. Great. Thank you. 
Uh, Heather, why don't you hop in first? Sure. I was just going to build on on what John was saying. And so at Bruce Power, we've been focusing on the uh, development and deployment of the Evinci reactor, which is a, a micro reactor that's targeted for off-grid applications in the north, uh, both at mines, heavy industry, and in remote communities. And as he, as he mentioned, it has the capacity um, to br- produce both heat and electricity. And because of that, we foresee a lot of potential partnerships. So I think he touched on uh, how the high, high quality heat and steam from uh, SMRs can be used to support other energy innovations like hydrogen production. Um, you know, we there are also opportunities to use the heat for uh, purposes such as uh, greenhouses, uh, commercial heating. But I think going forward, what we're going to see, not just in heavy industry, but in these small communities, is a series of partnerships to address their needs. Like it, you touch. I forget who it was who touched on it earlier and how we can, how nuclear can support some of the intermittent sources of power. So, you know, remote communities are going to have their preferences and they should have every option available to them. And likely it's going to be a multi-party or partner um, solution that meets their needs. Okay. The only Go thing I, I would build on all of this is, um, you know, biofuels are, are part of the low carbon fuel solution. And hydrogen is obviously the one that our sector is paying the most attention to. But the, the question gets to where do we find megatons? Um, because that is the question when it comes to, to net zero. Electricity is going to be part of that. But even if you triple the amount of electricity we have in Canada, that makes 60% of our, our, our overall energy mix. And, um, you know, John's talked about, um, you know, high temperature uses. Uh, concrete's one that always comes up to me. We're, we're going to need more concrete as we go forward. And, and that's a, a high heat uh, use. Uh, it's how can we use things like SMRs to make, uh, whether it be hydrogen or, or whatever, replace other, other elements? That's going to be, have to be part of the conversation. The net zero commitment is, is, is net zero in 2050. All those parts matter and innovative solutions and, and putting everything on the table is going to be part of that. And maybe in some cases that's going to be separating, you know, we need to figure out new ways to produce power to make a clean fuel next to where we can move it or store it as the case may be, because these are just going to be the, the questions that we're looking at. So if I could just add to that, I, I like where John t- and, and the team in here is actually taking the conversation. Um, you know, that this is what really excites me. If you actually turn your mind back to the industrial revolution at the turn of the century, yeah. what made it happen was cheap, affordable, safe electricity at an affordable cost. And, and you look at the opportunities in, in remote areas now that will have the options that were alluded to, you know, by, um, uh, by Heather there. And, 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 and it's incredible because, you know, we're bringing in a technology that will not only remove you know, what is currently in place there, which is diesel. And, but it opens up the door to use of energy, not just electricity, which opens the door to, you know, expanding your food system up there to something that might be far more affordable and and all year round. Um, and, and, And having that surplus of energy just starts to create a whole bunch of options that were never there in the first place. So, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And, and what's nice is that, you know, in this conversation, some people might be thinking, yeah, well, how close is this? Or are we talking like decades away? Um, we're, we're in it right now. Um, you know, there's a project going on at Chalk River. It's been approved and there's a negotiated deal there that we're going to build our first small modular reactor. It's a USNC reactor. 
And we had a great announcement in the industry, I think, just last week that they're just entering the, the CNSC, the regulators, entering the licensing process for a license to prepare a site. And, you know, we want to have one in the ground there uh, by 2025, I think, is what the kind of the target is right now. And, and so that'll be our first of a kind in Canada. And, you know, and that's what excites me again is that, you know, I was there when we built Darlington. That was the last reactor we built. And, uh, <laughs> we're building another one. So, uh, you know, for those of us who have been in the industry, this is this is monumental, right? Like um, some of us are saying, well, it's about time everybody caught up. Like, let's go. <laughs> and I think it's easy to get hung up on the economics of this, right? Like there's jobs, we're going to build stuff, it'll, it'll make power. But there's an equity issue for some of these things when it comes to access to power. And when, when you're up north, like the alternative is, you know, a, a, maybe you can connect with the long transmission line or it's you're, you're shipping and storing diesel, which has a cost to it. If you run out because it's particularly cold, you have to figure out a way of getting it in. And sometimes that involves flying it in, which is high cost. And like beyond the greenhouse gases, diesel has particulate and all sorts of other things just get in the way. And when we think about remote communities, which often live a very different experience than we have here in urban Canada, new technologies like this, whether it be SMRs, maybe it's, you know, solar tied to batteries or, or something like this, there is a, a life changing element to people that live a very different experience, uh, usually often historically marginalized people that live a very different experience than we have in, in big cities like here in Toronto, in Ottawa or in Toronto or wherever. Um, we have talked a ton about how the industry is moving forward. And I mean, I certainly have a background in construction, manufacturing and infrastructure. And I know in all of those fields, uh, skill shortages are a real issue. Is the industry in a position that's ready to scale up to be able to support this need for so much, like two or three times more energy by 2050? Do we have the uh, educational infrastructure in place? Do we, what, you know, are we armed to, to meet the need? I think John wanted to jump at this first. I'll go second. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. And I'm also going to be interested in Michael's uh, view of this because, the, you know, the challenge of, uh, creating that much generation is going to take um, more than nuclear, right? It's a, it's a whole, the, the whole electricity uh, industry and, and uh, everything that uh, the whole supply chain that, that accompanies that. But, uh, you know, um, as I said in my opening remarks, uh, one of Canada's advantages here in the nuclear uh, space, one of its many advantages is just the, the, the refurbishments that we have going on at, uh, at, at Bruce uh, power station in Darlington right now, right? It's, um, as I said, the largest, Canada's largest infrastructure project. We got this super strong, uh, nuclear ecosystem going right now with a lot of expertise that's very current, a very, very healthy, uh, supply chain. I mean, you know, Louis' company, PCL, is, uh, right in there and with a, a lot of a lot of people and a lot of uh you know cutting edge knowledge but at the same time the industry is looking 10 years ahead when these refurbishments are over and canada should be looking at this as you know what do we do with this incredible uh asset uh very knowledgeable highly skilled workers that we have in the nuclear sector the refurbishments will end at some point and that's why we're looking at deploying uh, these people into new nuclear projects, whether conventional larger plants or small modular reactors. So we do have to keep an eye on that because, as all of us know, um, in, in creating skilled people and keeping the keeping that knowledge and those people current is uh, takes a lot of work and a lot of time. Yeah, 
Well, well said, John. I was, you know, you, 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 you took some some of the sound bites that I was going to comment on, and, and I have to say, you know, from our our, our construction perch and, and looking to the industry and looking ahead over the next decade, uh, we feel the same way. Um, there's there's great opportunity for resources right across Canada. We have probably, you know, we're considered a, a tier one country when it comes to nuclear. Uh, right from our regulatory system, right through our supply chain and our operators. So we've got all of it and we can do all aspects of the value chain, including the waste management piece as well. So, you know, I think we're perfectly poised. Uh, we continue to educate in this area. And, and that is one of the uh, key contributors, I think, that has actually kind of changed um, the how, how nuclear is viewed, you know, it, it's, it's kind of gone through the school system over the last three decades. And those are the people who are in leadership roles now across the country. And, and, and they're saying, Hey, why not? Right. Why not nuclear because everything we've learned tells us that this is pretty safe. You know, we've, we've lived with nuclear reactors around us for the last 50 years. And, and uh, we have a regulatory process there that provides excellent oversight. Why shouldn't we continue to go down this path? Yeah. The only thing, uh, I'll just add to that, sorry to jump in, but John Priming, um, is the, like, jobs don't grow on trees, right? Like, we can't just expect that they'll be there when we need them. And I think when we think about the way the economy is is evolving, um, the kinds of jobs we need in 15 years, those are the people that are, are in elementary and high school right now. And we have to think about what that looks like and uh, develop the skill sets and, and we'll have to be productive at it. And, you know, th- we're not alone in this about, you know, making sure we have skilled labor and making sure, uh, you know, within Canada that we're able to do it. So that's a role where, where government can play a role. Um, and, you know, we work with, um, we have, you know, John and I are on a call each week with Electricity Human Resources of Canada, which is involved in this. Uh, but we have to be deliberate about it. This is as important as, um, you know, developing the technology so it exists and finding the minerals is you have to have someone that can put it together and operate it. And it's not just this, it's, it's solar technicians, it's line workers, it, it's everyone, you know, again, two to three times, it's going to be two to three times the amount of work. Go ahead, Heather. Yeah. So <clears throat> Michael set me up nicely there. So, so I've actually been following uh, electricity, human resources, Canada's uh, labor market intelligence research for several years, and they've actually been predicting a deficit in the skilled trades um, for all, as long as I've been following them. Um, the dust, the dust has yet to settle on uh, the impact of COVID-19, but I would expect that that would only you know, amplify that trend. Um, other trends that they've been consistently noting over the years is that are that, um, you know, they routinely report very uh, much lower numbers of women uh, in the electricity sector than men. And that's even lower in the case of the skilled trades. Uh, even lower still are the numbers of Indigenous people in the electricity sector. Uh, and that's not all bad news. It actually uh, uh, helps us to identify what is currently an under, underutilized or untapped uh, resource pool. And I know Electricity Human Resources Canada has been doing a lot of work in this area and the industry has been doing a lot of uh, work in this uh, area to draw these underrepresented groups or individuals um, to our sector. Um, but back to, um, you know, the impact of COVID, um, you know, I think 
you know, everyone is aware and the government recently acknowledged that they're seeing less women in the in the labor force than they have seen in, in the last two decades. And actually, in the, the recently uh, rolled out budget, they identified a number of strategic uh, and, uh, and other measures to address that, including um, uh, an, an, an apprenticeship uh, service that will connect uh, first, I think it's first year apprentices with potential employers. And they're looking to double that incentive um, in areas where employers are have are uh, securing, you know, women, racialized Canadians and persons with disabilities. So, um, you know, I think there is a challenge there. I'd be interested in Louis' opinion in terms of whether there is that that deficit in the trades. Um, but, but I'd also like to just, just flag once again that, you know, women, uh, indigenous peoples and some of these underrepresented groups, um, are a good resource pool. And, and I know personally that there are good opportunities for interesting, challenging, well-paying jobs in the nuclear industry. So. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to comment. Like I spent a career at, uh, most of my career through Ontario Hydro PG. And, and when I look at resources and, and, you know, women in the workplace, you know, I can, I can reflect back and think when we were building Darlington and we actually had to dedicate one washroom for females because there was a few tradespeople. And then by the time I left 22 years later, it was pretty well status quo. Everything was balanced and, and, and albeit, you know, it's still mostly male dominant. You know, the number of women in the trades field specifically went up considerably. And and we have we have some pretty serious discussions around this. You know, we're, we're trying to be equal opportunity employers. And then when you get into the conversation, you say, well, let's go look at the feedstock that we have available. Where do these people come from? And, and you know, it's kind of a reflection or in the company of what's available in the marketplace. When I went through engineering out of a, out of 155 mechanical engineers, five were women. By the time I left, it was up to 14 were women. And now I'm sure that the numbers are much higher. So your workplace will tend to reflect the feedstock availability and, and, and where you're hiring from the hiring pool. So, you know, that's part of it. But on the flip side, there are some, a, a number of non-traditional roles that have been filled with women. You know, a lot of my peers that I was peers with, I've, I've elevated into very senior roles in Ontario power generation. Um, you know, the presidents and CEOs of some of these SMR technologies that are being deployed in Canada. And that's all fantastic. So I think, you know, we're, we're trying to do our, our, our bit. You know, COVID has put, like you said, a, a step back in, into that progress. But I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we will rebound. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, you know, we talk about resources. And the one thing that I'd like to comment on is that it's not just about human capital, but it's also about financial capital as well. And, you know, we are as a, as globally, we're trying to get an entire industry off the ground that currently doesn't exist. The premise behind these small modular reactors is that we can actually fabricate about 85 to 90 percent of it offsite and then show up on site, put it all together with minimal activity on site. And, and, and then, you know, that's part of the efficiency that you gain and quality and safety, et cetera. But, um, you know, Canada's role in this with the, um, with the action plan that we've put in place and the government stepping up and starting to fund some of the developers that are getting close is actually fantastic. And, and, and the reason why it's very important is that it sends a very strong signal to the, to the financial markets. 
because eventually, you know, we want the financial markets to start participating in this. And as soon as you put the word nuclear on it, it, it takes it to a different level. Um, now, having said that, a lot of these SMR technologies don't have the traditional risks that the former, I'll call them 1970 technologies have that are currently in place. You invest in a small modular reactor today, the sa- some of the safety cases on, on, on these plants are such that you just can't melt the nuclear fuel. It's like physics will tell you that, like you, you just don't get to that temperature. So, you know, your investment is more protected in a new SMR than you are in a traditional one, where if there's an incident, you have the, you, you run the risk of losing your entire investment with some of those. But, um, you know, so I, I think Canada's playing the appropriate role. Um, of course, we'd like to see a little bit more than that because until we get the industry off the ground, we think that uh, having a partner like the federal government in there is key and even the provinces to play a role in helping the industry get its legs underneath it. And I think it'll just take a little bit and then it'll just take off after that. All right. I'm going to hop back to the polls now quickly as I'm amazed how quickly this hour is going. I knew there was lots of good stuff to talk about. So our first poll question, is nuclear power going to be a significant factor in the fight against climate change? And we have yes, with 96.3% of the votes. I think uh, there's a lot of agreement on that. The second one here is, what is the biggest concern about nuclear power? And then this is broken down by safety, which has got 12.5% of the vote. Overall cost to build the reactors, which is 16.7% of the vote. Uh, slow, the amount of time it takes to get up and running. That's got only 4.2% of the vote. And then cost of managing nuclear waste is uh, is uh, way ahead here at 62.5%. And then Leah, we have another category there, which is 4.2%. Does anyone on the panel want to comment on that cost of managing nuclear waste being so far ahead there? Sure. Well, you know, I think um, uh, maybe the question is a little bit um, misleading, uh, Corrine. Uh, the, you know, nuclear waste is is um, uh, clearly the, the the concern that is at the forefront of, of most people's, the public's mind when we think about nuclear. And it's, it's very topical right now because Canada is dealing with... Um, Permanent storage solutions for its its uh, all, for its nuclear uh, spent fuel and, and for other uh, lower um, you know uh, level waste and byproducts that it, it produces. So very topical, uh, not well understood, um, and so I think we're we're seeing that high uh, mark not because of the cost of a waste, but because of waste as an issue. So let me just say a couple of things. Uh, one is um, from a cost perspective. Uh, we're the only electricity generation uh, source technology that actually prepays uh, for the entire life cycle of, of, of the byproducts and spent fuel. You know, it produces from cradle to grave. Uh, it's it's prepaid, right? And uh, we're the only electricity uh, generation technology that is actually uh, responsible for um, uh, safely uh, managing uh, all of its uh, all, of, all of its byproducts and, and waste, right? Uh, that's that's important. Plus, we don't emit uh, into into the environment. Um, I'd also want to point out that uh, uh, the, the the management, the safe management and storage of uh, all forms of byproducts and spent fuel uh, in the nuclear industry uh, is relatively straightforward. Um, nobody in the world has ever been harmed, uh, injured, let alone killed. Uh, 
managing uh, spent fuel. Okay, uh, so these are important things to to remember, and and we're working on um, we're working on a permanent uh, deep geological reserve repository now that will will store uh, this waste. Um, NWMO is down to two uh, two communities. We're following in Finland steps uh, in this regard that uh, has has already launched one. And we've got incredible expertise in this area because of the various um, extraction industries we have. So the waste story here is something that people really need to look into to understand. And, and that will give them a lot of confidence in, in terms of how we manage uh, our waste. Yeah. I, 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 thank you, John. I was just going to say, like, to me, um, you know, I, I love I love this topic because I, I like to challenge back anybody and say, well, tell me what your industry is and show me where all your waste is, because I can wrap my arms around all the Canadian waste for the last 50 years and show you exactly where it is. And it's in our, it's in our care and control. And as John alluded, we have a, a very, um, you know, robust program around it. And and to me, it's, it's um, a poster child of how industry should be treating it, which is, you know, you should be responsible for everything from beginning to end. And, and so, you know, I won't go on because our time is running short, but uh, I think it's, um, I think we're right on the money and we've got technologies that are looking at using our current spent fuel to actually extract the residual energy. And then it becomes not a 700 year solution. It, we're down to like a hundred to 150 years, which is easily digestible, you know, within, you know, a couple of generations of, of us. So, um, I think it's a great story, and, and and I think we're very proud of what we've done in this industry in terms of managing that waste. Fantastic. We have a few minutes left. What I'm going to suggest here is why don't we have for a final wrap, everyone could take another minute or two to, um, you certainly can address the waste management issues. It's where we're chatting right now, or you're welcome to add another thought about you know where the future of nuclear is going. But I love that we've tackled waste here. It was on the list, and I'm glad we're getting to it. Uh, so go ahead, Heather. Why don't you go? I know you had a thought there. Yeah, I was. I was just going to build on the radioactive uh, waste management theme. So, so I've had the opportunity to work in radioactive waste man management at AACL, and I've obviously been exposed to our practices at the Bruce site. And what I would say is that radioactive waste is well managed in Canada, and it's already in a safe and stable condition. Uh, I think that, uh, however, the uh, the recent, I guess it was late last year, Natural Resources Canada decided to uh, review our radioactive waste policy framework, which I think um, led people to believe that there might be some question around um, the suitability of our waste policy framework. I would also say that there are no gaps in our existing framework. Um, and hence, you know, our radioactive waste being well managed. Um, but there has been some very interesting feedback coming out of that that uh, policy framework um, review. I think uh, a lot of people aren't, you know, they're just not aware of all of the various agencies that play a role in providing oversight of our radioactive waste, Transport Canada, Health Canada, CNSC. Um, and they also, uh, I think we could do with some improved clarity around um, how they interrelate and what each of their responsibilities are. And, and, and just uh, to quickly wrap up, I'll just note that coming out of that feedback as well, there's an acknowledgement that uh, that nuclear is uh, a tool for mitigating climate change. And so any radioactive waste mal, uh, management policy framework would need to have the flexibility to support the advanced reactor technologies that will help us mitigate climate change. And with that, I'll just 
<laughs> wrap it up. I'll be real quick. I think um, in, in the waste conversation, uh, the, the only thing we have to remember is that we're, we're dealing with an existential crime, climate crisis because we've been storing carbon waste from fossil fuels in the atmosphere for 200 years. And, um, you know, nuclear waste is a hard problem. The rest of the panels highlighted how we can handle it. But um, we're going to have to look at all solutions as we think about dealing with, with this. And uh, there are solvable hard problems, about, but business as usual uh, just can't happen. Thank you. How about you, Louis? Final thought? Yeah. I, I thought it was a great discussion. And, you know, my vision of the future is that um, we will see small modular reactors of, of, of various sizes kind of distributed around the globe. And, and I think it'll set the stage for the next 50 to 100 years. Now, you look at the life cycle of some of these plants, you don't even switch the fuel out for 20 years. Um, you know, so you can get a, quite a few life cycles out of it very simply and with very small amounts of, of fuel. So I, I think it's a, a positive future. I think we need to continue to educate um, people around us because those of us who have been in the industry are obviously very well informed, but, you know, we need the general population to also understand what's going on and, and to reflect on, on, on how this is a positive thing for us. And, and so we can move on in this because, you know, we, we, we need a license, a social license to operate these within the jurisdictions that we're going to be going to globally. And that's, that's equally as important as any technical matter on the table. So um, I encourage a lot of these sessions and, and I hope there are people here that are, are new to the industry and we're not just speaking to our colleagues so that we continue <laughs> to educate and inform. Thank you for the opportunity. All right, John, it's up to you to bring us home now. <laughs> oh, that's okay. No pressure. Listen, that can be a big <laughs> shout out to uh, to uh, Intelli Infrastructure and Renew Canada for bringing us together. Um, I, I echo uh, Louis' uh, hope here that uh, we've reached um, a broader audience, and I think we have because of the, the broad appeal of your uh, publication and business operation. Um, and, you know, it's something that we have to keep an eye on. It's why we're working with the Canadian Electricity Association and the other electricity uh, generating technologies, because it's going to take everything uh, that we've got to uh, to tackle this climate crisis and decarbonize our energy systems. So I guess for the future, um, I would just have an appeal to everybody who's listening today, and, and that is uh, look, um, it's going to take every single clean technology that we have on the table right now and every single clean technology that we have under development, including hydrogen and small modular reactors, carbon capture and storage, storage, uh, to be able to tackle this problem and create the amount of energy, clean energy that we need going forward. So please do your homework and recognize that we're going to need everything here uh, to get this uh, to get this handled. Great. Thank you to all of our panelists today. And I'd like to add a special thank you to PCL Construction for sponsoring today's webinar as well. I imagine most of you are already pretty familiar with PCL, but I'd invite you to visit their site at pcl.com and click on our work to learn more about some of the really great projects that they have worked on in the past and are currently working on as well. So thank you again. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Infraintelligence podcasts are adapted from an ongoing webinar series hosted by Renew Canada magazine. You can find out more by following Renew Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn or by visiting renewcanada.net.